Hey, everyone, and welcome to Spiel Chicago, the podcast exploring progressive and feminist work in Chicago theater. My name is Smyra Yan, and my guest this week is Jacqueline Stone, the artistic director of Emerald City Theater, which serves audiences all over Chicago from ages 13 all the way down to zero. We talk about how she got into the business, about her work with Tuta, and what theater for babies actually looks like. Enjoy. Jacqueline Stone, thanks so much for meeting with me. Thank you. Um, I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. Do you remember your first play? I do. Uh, the very first show that I ever went to, I was five years old. Uh, I grew up in New York. And my father took me to see the Broadway production of Annie. And originally, my family thought I was too young to go see the show. They took my older sister, Amy, who's five years older than me, to see it. And uh, after Amy saw it, she came home and I would proceed to act out all the scenes with her because she would repeat them uh, to the best of her memory, what she saw. So she would like hide me in the laundry basket like Mr. Bundles and pretend to uh, help me escape the house. And, and so eventually my family said, like, I think she's old enough to take her. Uh, so my, my father took me and I vividly remember that we sat in the balcony area and apparently I sang all of the songs out loud with the performers because at that point I had memorized yeah. every word on the soundtrack and um, for you know depending on how old listeners might be at that time um, Annie the title role of Annie was being played by Sarah Jessica Parker and uh, I don't remember this part, but I guess lots and lots of people were, you know, turning to my father with very stern and angry faces, like, you know, get your child to stop. Like, I paid all this money to see Sarah Jessica Parker. Like, your daughter is, is singing in my ears. And my father, to his credit, or, or not, now that I'm a professional in theater, <laughs> I probably would have been angry if I were them. Um, he, he never told me to be quiet. He let me sing like at the top of my lungs the whole show. And back then, maybe ushers were less aggressive. <laughs> so, um, and because he just said like he knew what a blast I was having, that I was having the time of my life, and he didn't want me to stop. So, yeah, I have a vivid memory of that first show. about tuta myself yeah. right is that an acronym or is it just it name? is okay does nobody know it <laughs> uh some people know it uh it's uh it's an acronym for the utopian theater asylum which a lot of people know that part the company was founded by uh, a husband and wife team from former yugoslavia and uh, they were graduate students while we, many of us were undergraduate students at University of Maryland. But I think for insiders that have known us a long time, because there could maybe be some perceived pretension from a name like the Utopian Theater Asylum. So we also all know um, that tuta is, is also the Serbian word for a chamber pot or a <laughs> piss pot. Uh, and our founders being, um, yeah, they, they speak Serbian, so uh, I think that's kind of the fun dichotomy, I think, within Tuda is like this, this uh, excelling or striving for a very high level of art at any expense, but there, there's also a lot of humor behind the scenes. That's great. <laughs> I like that. 
Um, so it started in DC and you said a collective, did they like sort of model themselves after those kinds of like, uh, you know, the Wooster group or the, um, living theater? Yeah, I would say that, um, I mean, it, it definitely was a unique setup and I, and I think that our founders, uh, having trained and, and studied in an Eastern European country, their, their training was very, very different than what I re received in America. And so I think it, um, follows a philosophy that the work is is very very collaborative it is co-created it's not necessarily devised work but i think it follows a lot of the same principles and it tends to be very movement based or have a very like physical approach to it uh, and we also have a much longer process than than I, I typically have at, at other theaters in America. And, and I think that was a lot of their their background. You may work on a piece for eight or nine months before you put that it forward in front of an audience. Um, and I don't think that was them necessarily trying to model after another company, but, but more uh, model from what their experience and training and, and background was. And, and then over time, I think those of us that said, wow, this is a really great way to work. We weren't necessarily taught to work this way. Um, those of us that responded to it, um, I think you know, now we're, we're the ones really also carrying out those, those ideas. Cool. Yeah. Um, the mission includes search for the unique and the exceptional in the language of theater mm -hmm. and to expose questions vital to contemporary American society. Yeah. So it's like not heavy, but like a real serious <laughs> mission. Was, was that always the mission or was it, did that, did the artist sort of find that mission in the work? Yeah, I, the the company has had, um, for the most part, the, the same mission, and I think that's what I've appreciated about the work so much. The uh, Jaco, the the founding artistic director, and and Natasha um, had such a strong, strong artistic vision and, you know, are uncompromising, uh, very collaborative, but uncompromising in, in those ideas, and I think they instilled all of that in us there is a lot of humor but but yeah it's 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 a it's heavy yeah. it's a serious art form i mean i think uh you know we we tend to produce work that falls into like two main categories we are often producing work from eastern europe that might be well known there but has never had a premiere in the u.s or in chicago uh, and i think the the other bucket we kind of work in is taking a really well-known established work like Romeo and Juliet or Uncle Vanya, but putting it through the, the Tuda process and the Tuda lens. And so it has a very different flavor to it. I, I like thinking about that, like how we bridge known to unknown in one direction or, or the other. And um, there's still always lots of humor, but I would say, yeah, we're, we're usually dealing with, with you know, fairly serious topics. Mm -hmm. Um, I also read on your website that it's dedicated to radical stagings of modern and classical texts. What yeah. does that mean? I think for, for us in Tuda, it often just means being completely relentless about what the text is calling for. What does the story want? I think we strive to support the story, uh, above anything else. So, um, I think you know, when we're working with a designer, that designer is more concerned with how they are supporting a moment on stage rather than 
how great they can make the lights look. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a fearlessness in, in the work and it is very unusual at times. I, I think we, at least so we're told, and, and a lot of that is more of an Eastern European aesthetic, but it's based on the idea that that we want the conversation with the audience throughout the show and after the show to be very active. And so uh, we like to pick texts that leave the audience with a question after the show is over. So that makes some people really uncomfortable when they come to the theater. They want to feel like they understand every part. They want to know a little more from you about, what am I supposed to think about this? Uh, and in Tudo, we, we want you to tell us what you think about it. We want you to be um, comfortable having a different uh, you know, opinion than the person next to you. So we have really lively question and answers, <laughs> I, I will say. But yeah, it is often that, that someone will say to us after, I don't know if I understood everything I saw, but I really want to go home and think about it all weekend, or I want to talk to you about what mm -hmm. I saw three days from now. And and you know we're we're okay if you loved the show or you hated the show. Uh, in all honesty, as long as you had a strong reaction and you're and it evokes a dialogue for you. Um, I, I think that's important in theater. That's how we, we push the form forward. Um, I think, you know, silence is, is death in theater. Or I, I think about many theater experiences I have where I walk out and I, I just, I'm like, meh. I just, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really, meh. Give or take, I probably won't remember that. Yeah. So. How do you then remain accessible? Like if you're pushing these boundaries and you're trying to do things that maybe make people uncomfortable and start conversations, do you ever worry that, um, that it, that it won't be accessible or that people will feel that it's like over their head? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, I think that is a challenge for us before somebody has walked in the door. Sometimes it's hard at times to grow new audience members for us. We have a very, very loyal base of people. Um, but yeah, the, the first step through the door can be hard for that reason. And then I think typically once somebody has come in and, and actually experienced it for themselves, they, they're pretty, they're, they're committed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, we have some pretty committed, loyal people. Um, but I, I think there's an important distinction. I, I think that there are performance groups that, that strive to provoke just to provoke. I think for us, it is still first and foremost about what supports the story and the characters. And if we do our job well and we do that honestly and with integrity, um, you know, certainly the hope is that that is accessible. I really love plays that just sort of wash over you. I like to go to the theater by myself because I don't like to talk to people about it after. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, what did you think? Because then it's like, it just evolves into a conversation about what you liked and what you didn't like about the show. I like something that just like is evocative yeah. and you don't like totally understand it. I want theater to be able to occupy the kind of space that like music videos have. Like music videos are the only place, not the only place, but a really mainstream form of entertainment that people will accept that it's non-linear, that it's imagistic, right. but they're still super into it and they just understand and accept that. And I just want people to come at the theater like you watch a music video, you know? Yeah, that is such a great example, actually, because 
uh, yeah, we we will go there with other mediums. I, I find audiences can be more accepting. And you talked about nonlinear structure, and I think a lot of the work we do at at Tuda can be nonlinear. And and so there there is a frustration sometimes from from audience to understand like people want to understand the rules mm. i was like well it's theater so it's live performance their the rules are the rules of whatever that piece are and what it calls for to tell the story and yeah music video is a very good example you directed a show called the silent language did, Tuta, yeah. right and um i read a comment that it was for ages seven and up but it sort of was received in the same way that any of your other shows might be can you talk about how you like bridge that gap or if you thought about that or how yeah. that went that show was a is a show that was written for young audiences and it is a balkan fairy tale and when i was i had been directing plays here at emerald city i had been thinking about directing my first show at tuda I had been before that just a, a performer in every show, so I was I was moving into directing, and I wanted to take some of the experience that I had in directing for young audiences, and then I wanted to filter it through the the Tudor lens, and it being uh, a fairy tale, fairy tales of course being I think one of the most universal things you can put on stage for every age. I was curious about what a production would look like if I took a script that had in a traditional sense been written for young audiences, but if I approached it for all ages. And so that was really the target I had in my head. This is for all ages. So knowing that Tudor's audience is primarily adult, we, we had done some shows like um, adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, but, but for the most part, our audiences are adult. And so I knew that it was important to not alienate our regular audience, but I was also very excited and curious about bringing young people in for a, a Tuda-esque experience. Uh, so I didn't really approach the process any differently than any other adult show. And, and I think because I direct in both worlds for young audiences and for adults, a lot of the process has merged together. I, I mean, working in theater for young audiences makes you the most honest artist you could possibly be, I, I think, um, because your audience will tell you when it's not. Um, and they will literally tell you out loud in the middle of the performance. So I wear that voice in my head, like, what is the five-year-old saying about this moment out loud in front of 300 other people? To me, that was just more about a challenge of like, how do you widen the audience? And, and, and can you create enough sustainable uh, energy and, and content for adults to be really engaged in the show. And um, I, I think that they were, I mean, adults were, I think, really intrigued because they, they said that it, it, it really caused them to sit in a childlike state. And I think the same true for the work we, we do at Emerald City. I'm always interested in making sure that there are challenging and intriguing things for the adults that are sitting in the audience with with their children. I think that's important. That's a well-rounded experience. And um, they want to be reminded of what it's like to be a kid. Um, that's a positive thing for us that we don't channel very often in everyday life anymore as adults.
When did you start working with Emerald City? Uh, I came on board with Emerald City in 2005 as the education manager and then moved into the role of education director. So I spent uh, about 12 years in that position and really built the bulk of, of what's the education programs today, which serve ages three and a half to, we're like kind of veering up to 15 now, but, but really about 13 years old. Then I stepped into the role of artistic director a year and a half ago. What kind of um, programming is there for like, say like educational programming for like the really young kids, like the three and a half year olds? Yeah, so three and a half to five, um, we have creative play classes that have different themes like pirates and mermaids and um, uh, princess at night boot camp. And you know, we're taking a particular theme or we might be taking a literary title uh, like Cat in the Hat, something that they're intrigued by, and they're they're really focusing more than anything at that age on on great life skills, uh, listening, communication, how to work in an ensemble, how to get up in front of other people and say things. I mean, these are basic, uh, amazing life skills that I think are really important to start at that at that age, whatever they they end up doing in life, and then as if a, if a child progresses through the program, then they the classes get more performative as mm-hmm. as they get older. So if they're, you know, twelve years old, they're they're going to be dealing with a known title of a show like Seussical or mm-hmm. something something like that. How long have you been artistic director now? It's like a year, right? About a year and a half. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, uh, it's 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 a huge change uh, from from what I was doing before, and I think. There's just a lot of exciting, I think, moves we're making. And I think we've spent a lot of this past year really working on trying to put culturally relevant stories on stage. I think our audience is really diverse, and, and that was an area that was important to me to um, really focus on. And I think we're starting some interesting projects too with how can we continue to expand the ages of the kids that we're serving how do we put the highest quality you know talent on our stages and and with our with our artistic teams and so it you know it's a, it's a huge undertaking but um yeah, it's it's exciting. We had a lot of firsts this year um in in what we did. So definitely the 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 artistic project that was probably like the the most uh, different from what we've done before. We did a shadow puppetry show uh, based on the Ezra Jack Keats books, The Snowy Day, Letter to Amy, yeah. uh, uh, four of the books that focus on Peter. And so that that was really the, and that was focused uh, for ages three and up, so very, very young. And so that was really the, the first time where I said, okay, how can I take some of the experience and background working in this more Eastern European aesthetic, uh, more visual, uh, more movement-based, and take an ensemble of actors and, and really almost, uh, even though it was a scripted piece, really work almost in a devised theater manner and, um, and yeah, and, and do a, a whole bunch of different types of forms of shadow puppetry um, for something very visual. So, I mean, it was, it was a big undertaking, but, but yeah, it was definitely 
for me very satisfying as as a as an artist to just take a step forward or to show something a little bit different to our audiences than that maybe they've seen so cool when you let's say are casting for a show for young audiences like very young audiences is there something you look for in the actors or is it just it, the the same kind of casting it's not the same kind of <laughs> casting at all i mean it's the same in in the sense that you are absolutely looking for the highest quality talent um but i will say that that some of the qualities that that I think make a strong educator or, or a strong teaching artist when you can find a performer that also understands those elements th those are like that's when you hit the jackpot mm -hmm. uh, so it is I, I mean I, I always tell actors when they're coming into audition for us like this this has the ability to be something extremely different and impactful on your life. The change, the, the impact that you will have and the, on the volume of people you will have it on, but it has to be right for you. Um, you know, come fourth or fifth week of the run. If you don't really like to perform at 10 in the morning, it doesn't make you a bad person, <laughs> but it just means this might not be the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yeah, that's not a statement on whether someone's, a good performer or not but you know you you have to i think you have to have a strong sense of wanting to contribute to community and being part of community when when you're doing work like this and i think for the the artists that that resonates with yeah this is this is a really beautiful and and unique experience I and mean, it's the reason that most of us i think that are in theater for young audiences are um when I meet with people for the first time, maybe it's dramatic, but when I meet with them, you know, if I'm interviewing a, a director or designer, I always say to them, like the reason that I am, that I do theater for young audiences is because I'm trying to save theater. I truly believe that, you know, your first theater experience can make or break whether you are a life, you have lifelong appreciation for the arts or not. We have a, great response like i take the responsibility very seriously that if we provide a high quality exciting inspiring creative interactive experience for someone who's three and that is the first thing that they encounter about live performance or theater like we might have a shot like then then that is the first experience that that person remembers. And so like we're, we're touching over 80,000 families a year at Emerald City. So when you think about the potential impact of, of, of um, putting something exciting in front of them, if you do your job right, uh, you know, maybe, you know, a, a portion of Chicago, you know, then continues on. Like, I, I don't think it's our job to keep those kids forever. Like I want us to be that first building block and I want to set that kid up so that then after they peek out on our shows, you know, as a teenager that they're inspired to go to a looking glass show, that they're mm -hmm. inspired to go to actors gymnasium, that they're inspired to, you know, go, go to red orchid. I mean, I think that's our, our job We're we're hopefully working together in a really important way with the rest of the theater community, even though maybe not everybody always thinks about that connection. Uh, we've been working for the last uh, four years or so. Uh, we have a baby theater, 
she you may have read about um, but that that theater was custom designed for babies to come in and do a first theater like that's the first first theater experience and so we're customizing and making these original shows and so now uh this year i i got to create that show and it's the first time that i had my own friends coming with their newborn babies to see their first, like truly first theater experience like their kids are 12 to 18 months old so what does a play for a baby <laughs> look like like what is that uh well it, it you know it's professional actors it does have a narrative but but what i feel like is different is it's uh, non-traditional seating so it's set up uh, as an immersive experience and it is a i'd say it's sort of a combination of what you know you're an educator so this makes sense to you it's probably a combination of like a creative play class with a professional performance experience so when the babies come in the door they each get a basket full of props and throughout the show they're called upon to discover different items that they use in different ways in the space to help them forward the the story the journey of the characters uh, they are also called upon in a number of different ways to to participate it's just very very participatory uh and it's you're dealing with a large age range zero to five mm -hmm. so you're also trying to stair step the experience i'm trying to have you know for the baby who maybe doesn't get up to brush little bo peep sheep because the older kids do i want something like a mirror inside the basket or, or i want something tactile so the baby has an experience where they can interact with the prop in front of them and watch the other kids mm -hmm. and the older kids might want to go up and directly help you know forward or feed the cow the sheep and um, so we're working in tandem between the education department and our artistic department it's like a co-production and they're sitting in the room with me and they're saying hey the height of that cow designer <laughs> needs to only be this high because this is the maximum height of what a four or five-year-old is uh, so our designers are like out of the box they're like doing something they've never done before too they're like well you know normally lighting transitions work one way in adult theater um, but we all know when we work with young young people that uh, it's all about transitions mm -hmm. and, and um, forecasting what's happening next and being thoughtful and easy and slow with your transitions um, you know in regards to abrupt movement or sound so the the designers are getting some of their early education experience uh, you know with with what we're doing because that's all part of that design process um, oh my but, goodness. But I you like... definitely should come in and yeah. it, I mean it's it's a little hard to describe people say like but do they really but they're babies do they real they don't really sit through the play like it's not really a play I'm like it is it's 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 unbelievable yeah my friend brought her twin sons who are under a year old her and her husband and she said like they don't really sit still so we'll see what happens you know and and the kids are allowed to roam mm -hmm. around there is a quiet room you know cool down zone and uh and and yeah the the twins just sat they didn't move and they watched for you know 35 minutes I and mean, it's wild it's wild too i think 
you know, there's probably a lot of environments. I'm, I'm not a parent myself. I'm an, I'm an aunt. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but I can imagine that for parents of young kids, there's a, probably a lot of anxiety about participating in different things because, um, you know, they don't know what to expect. It's unpredictable. They don't know what maybe their kid might, you know, do in that moment. And so to me, I also love that, like, whatever happens, it's an experience and a space where, a a baby or a, a kid is allowed to do that. You know, like the, the whole, the whole way that the show is set up is designed around the behavior and the desires and the needs of young people. Like it's customized to that, them being the most important person in the room, as opposed to them trying to maybe fit into a different experience that, maybe was or wasn't customized for mm -hmm. them. And that's probably what the bulk of experiences are for, for young people. So yeah, there's, there's been such a exciting response to it. I think many young parents just saying like, there's not really anything like this we have to take our kids to. So, um, they're, they're thankful. A lot of them like, Thanks. And they, they will come back multiple times, even though it's this, you know, same show, or even oh, yeah. if it's the same title, because they're like, well, it's always different. And, you know, three months later, their kids develop their, where they are developmentally is different than three months before. So yeah, that's, do your shows run that long? The baby theater show has been, each one has been running for a whole year. Whoa. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's a smaller seating capacity, yeah. right? Because oh, we, we want the experience not to be overwhelming, mm -hmm. um, you know, too many people. But so you've got maybe f max of 40 people per show. The shows are larger shows that are in like 350 to 400 seat houses. Those are still going for about four months each. So they're, they're long runs, which is why I circle back to my other comment of, if you don't want to perform at 10 in the morning uh -huh. for four months, you know, like, you've got to know it's right for you that's awesome <laughs> um what do you guys have coming up uh, our our we'll be launching our upcoming season our baby theater show that we created that just opened in april mother goose's garden which is based on all of the various mother goose nursery rhymes that will that is running right now and that will keep running through to hopefully through the spring. So that'll be part of the season. That's the zero to five. And then we will have a Chicago premiere, the magic Treehouse book series. We'll be doing the musical based on the book where they go back to Elizabethan England and they help William Shakespeare. They, they save him during one of his plays, <laughs> uh, showtime for Shakespeare that play and uh, then we'll close out the season with the musical adaptation of Knuffle Bunny which are the Mo Willem everybody has that reaction when we say Knuffle Bunny uh, Mo Willems and that'll be we, we did that show five years ago we'll do a new production of it but we're bringing we'll bring that back he's a Mo Willems is a is a favorite for sure yeah he's yeah. great oh my gosh what are your what is your biggest like hope and dream for Emerald City oh Good like question. Shooting for the stars. Good question. Uh, to me, the the hope is, of course, to to serve all of Chicago's children. At at its core, um, there are I think I think seventy seven wards in all of Chicago. I think, if my math is right, and I want to serve all of them. 
Um, and that takes all different kinds of methods between bringing young people to our theater, uh, both through paid ticketing and through you know programs that are underwritten, and that also means taking our shows and, and our programs out into um, into neighborhoods that, that may not be able to get to us, and that's a it's a huge job. But but to me, uh, that yeah, that's how we save theater, right? All yeah. all of them. Uh, and I think uh, at its core, in addition to, to serving all of Chicago's children, in order to do that, having having the most culturally relevant narratives and you know stories and relationships that, that we can put on stage. And I think in the, the theater for young audiences uh, portfolio, I think that that calls for a lot of development of new works as well. I, I think that there is a lot of uh, stories in the canon that are quite diverse um, as you start dealing with like middle school and up. But as we regard our, our preschoolers and our pre-K and K through three, there, there's actually a pretty big void in the market. So I think that's, that's the other really large audacious goal is how can Emerald City be the the organization that helps fill that void? How can we be in charge of developing work that will start to um, make sure that all voices are represented out there, um, you know, particularly for this this youngest age group, how we can impact um, at the youngest level is to me the way we make the most change. That is super exciting. Um, Jacqueline Stone, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank this has you. been really great. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Jackie for chatting with me, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Tuta or Emerald City Theater, we'll have links up on our show page. If you have any questions, comments, or rants, you can email us at spielchicago, that's S-P-I-E-L Chicago, at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for now. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you at the theater.